Our Father, we are so thankful that we can come to you again this morning to worship together in the house of the Lord. The scripture teaches us to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. And we know, Lord, the reason is for the joy and the peace, the sharing, the encouragement, not only uh, that, but the instruction, of course, that we can also receive from your word. All of this serves to strengthen us for the week which is before us. Lord, we invite you to be present with us now in these next moments as we share together around the first chapter of the book of Genesis. God, lead us in our understanding of these matters. Help us in applying the truths to our lives that we might grow in you and become more the people you would have us to be. Lord, we ask you to bless us, and we thank you that you are the God of blessing, the God of light, the God of hope. And so we commit ourselves to you today, knowing that we are in the hands of an all-benevolent, all-sovereign God. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. We have seen in looking at the first two verses of this chapter that God brought into being this amorphous mass which uh, was to become planet Earth. And we discover that he has pulled it into shape, whether, as we noted last week, by, at that moment, the creation of gravity. Who knows? Uh, you probably are aware of the fact that it was Isaac Newton who first propounded the theory of gravity. And even though it may not have happened as a result of an apple hitting him on the head in a garden as he sat and thought, as one of the stories goes, uh, he was the one who discovered or basically uh, put together the idea that every body in the universe attracts every other body. And, and that force between them is uh, directly proportional to their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. That's more or less the formula uh, that works. And, and where did it come from? I mean, God is the author of that, this, this theory not theory, but this reality of gravity. There are many laws that you and I may violate, but there's some that we cannot violate, such as the law of gravity. Uh, it always works. <laughs> as long as we have any mass left to us, uh, it, it works. And so the earth was pulled into this spherical shape that we are acquainted with. And of course, I noted last time, it's not perfectly spherical. The uh, geographers call it an oblate spheroid meaning that it's slightly flattened at the poles due to the centrifugal force of the spin of the Earth. If you were standing at the equator, you'd be traveling at approximately 1,050 miles per hour as the Earth is spinning around on its axis. It's, it's much slower up here. We're probably only traveling between six and 700 miles per hour. So, you know, fortunately the atmosphere goes with us, so otherwise we'd have a pretty strong wind blowing around our ears uh, all the time. But it's true, if you go to the equator, you, you weigh slightly less than you do here uh, because of the centrifugal force. So. <laughs> we have in this 
passage that we read this morning, the first record of God speaking. We're only three verses into the Bible, and it already says God spoke. And he brought light into existence. What God is doing is bringing into the physical realm a small token of his glory. Probably, I think at this moment, when it says, let there be light, he created the whole electromagnetic spectrum, all the way from the longest waves to the very shortest waves. The whole thing was probably created instantaneously. Of course, we only see a small band of the whole spectrum as visible light, but all of the rest of it certainly was created at that same moment as we read about it here. Now, Scripture refers to light as an attribute of God in many places. And I have put on your outline just a few of those passages in Scripture where light and God are brought together very clearly. I'd like to just read those briefly this morning. One of them, James chapter 1, verse 17, is one of my favorite verses. Years ago, as a family, we memorized the first chapter of James, and this is one of the verses that sort of stands out and sticks with me. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from whom? The Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, or as the King James says, shadow of turning this, of course, teaches us very specifically, I think, as you look about it, look, look at it, that the lights referred to here, of course, certainly mean more than the physical lights by far. He is the author of the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, and the whole thing. But he is the author of the light of truth, the light of hope, the light of joy, the light of well-being. All, all these things that come down from God that we experience every day. I try to emphasize to the students at college when they begin griping and grumbling about various things that we are amongst the teeny, teeny fraction of people in the all, whole history of human existence that enjoy what we enjoy today. Very few people have enjoyed the freedom that you and I enjoy. Very few, few people in all of history have been able to modify their environment to make it comfortable for themselves as we sit in heated or cool environment. You know, the great kings and queens of antiquity who many people wish they could have been a queen or a princess, and you realize they lived in drafty old palaces and castles with, with moss on the walls and winds whipping through the corridors, and all they had were fireplaces, which are very inefficient, as you know, as heating. And... Uh, we live in a day and age when we have medical help such as has never been before available. I mean, you and many of us here probably wouldn't be here if we'd have been born 150 years ago or even less. We'd have died. I, mean, I had appendicitis when I was 20-something or other. I'd be dead, you know, because 150 years ago, they wouldn't have known what to do or if they had. We wouldn't want them to do it. <laughs> you know, they, uh, it's, it reminds you of, you probably uh, have heard of accounts of the Civil War. You know, in the Civil War, you got a wounded limb, they just simply took the limb off. You know, don't bother trying to fix it. Uh, so we are, we're just blessed beyond measure today, and we really have nothing to complain about at all. 
So like the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, God providing for their every need and yet griping, complaining, and wishing they could go back and eat onions in Egypt. God is the father of lights and all these wonderful things, not only the physical but more than that, the spiritual blessings that he pours down upon us are immeasurable. His immutability. The, the passage emphasizes that God is unchanging. God isn't fickle. He's not capricious like the gods uh, of this world. You, you read about the lives of the various pagan peoples around the world and how they have to keep appeasing these gods and after all they've done all this appeasement they don't even know then if the God is going to listen to them. They don't understand of course what's going on. God is absolutely the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is great comfort. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 we have one of the more beautiful passages of Scripture. We'll read a couple of other verses from this same passage later but specifically verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This verse, as I see it, ties, and, and of course, the, uh, those who uh, commentate on this basically say that that phrase, light shall shine of darkness, is, is more or less a generic quote from Genesis chapter 1. This ties Genesis 1 and John 1 together. The physical light of God's creation in the beginning with the light of the world, Jesus Christ, coming in, the two are brought together in, as one in this particular verse. It is God, the same God who said, let there be light, who sent his Son into the world to be the light unto our hearts and the salvation of our souls. And it's through the face of Christ that we see the glow and the glory of who God really is. We shall behold him, we sing, face to face. That will be someday when we do so. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And this is the message which we have heard from him and announced to you that what? God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now this is not a definition of God, because if it was a definition you could reverse it. Light is God. Well, light is not God. But it is a statement of, the, of an attribute of God. God is light. Through him comes light into this world. And there is no darkness at all in God. To me that is such an exciting thing. You, you know, if you, you remember again the Star Wars theory and the idea is that there's, there's this force in the universe and that there's a light side of the force and there's a dark side of the force. There's a good side of the force, there's an evil side of the force, which is, of course, as you well know, a, a cosmic dualism, a kind of a pantheism, which is basically uh, Hindu in its origin. There is no dark side of God. We do not do what the Zoroastrians do, which is take Ahara here and Ahriman here and put them more or less on an equal basis. Here is the God of light and the God of darkness, and they're in this eternal struggle. No. We have the God of light, who is light, and he's almighty and all-powerful. Satan is this, this little bitty dried-up being over here who goes around like a toothless roaring lion, who is the God of this world, but he has no power compared to God. 
God could snuff him out instantly if he so chose. He has not chosen to do that. And so as we, we think of light, we have to realize that, of course, the message is that God is light. And when he says, let there be light, he's saying not only physical light, but the more important light of his reality, of who he is, shines into this world and shines into our life. And that really manifests itself uh, in its fullest extent, I think, as we are going to be able to comprehend it in Revelation 21, verse 23, where, of course, it is speaking of the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. And we read, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and the lamp is the Lamb. Let, in, in, in looking at that, let, let me turn to Isaiah. I didn't put this on the outline, but Isaiah chapter 60 relates to this same theme. Isaiah chapter 60, looking at verses 1, 2, and 3 to begin with. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, Deep darkness, the peoples. Isn't that what we see today? We live in a world of deep darkness. It seems that wherever you turn, even in our society, deep darkness has set in. So few have any idea of what life is really all about. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Many feel, of course, this, this is a millennial statement, but certainly it's true for us individually. As the Lord comes into our lives, we are the light, and people will be drawn to us to share that light with them. Then over in the latter part of that same chapter, down in verse 19, Isaiah 60, verse 19, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will set no more, neither will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light when the days of your morning will be finished. That certainly is a statement not only of spiritual light of God's presence. It is a physical statement. In the new heaven, the new earth, the new body in which we will dwell, the light which we will perceive with the perfect eyes we will be given will also be the light of God's presence. And I think the whole universe will be radiant as the new heavens and the new earth are created. Today, as you view out in the darkness, you lie on your back some night out in the hillside and stare into space, and you see these little specks way out there, and it seems like there's so much darkness, little spots of light here and there. I think the new heaven, the new earth will just be radiant with God's glory, far beyond anything that we have ever witnessed in this life and in this world. God said, let there be light. He is the author of physical and spiritual light. It's significant, I believe, that in the beginning God said, let there be light, and it's recorded at the beginning of this book, which is our light. 
the physical light, which God has created to be the strength and the hope of our physical life, stands in parallel to the spiritual light of God's Word, which allows spiritual life to become a reality. We're all famous. <laughs> We're all famous. We're all familiar. <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs> with the passage that we sing sometimes in uh, Psalm 119.105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This, this is the light into your life and into mine today. Sure, we have the sun shining. We can turn on these lights here. and We have physical light so we don't run into the wall and we can see each other and read. But this is... Excuse me. This is the light into your life and into my life. This is the lamp which is important to us. And all of this is wrapped up in this initial Genesis passage as we look at it. Now, in the fourth verse of Genesis 1, 1, God calls the light good. He says that the light is good. The word means pleasant desirable. You can believe that if the light were pleasant and desirable to God, what would it be to, to humanize? Then there's a reference in the passage in Genesis to the earth. It says God divided the light from the dark and that he created day and night. This means that God begins to focus the light Job makes a reference to this, Job 26. That is, the reference is made in Job 26, verse 10, where it says, He, that is God, has inscribed a circle over the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Now, you and I don't see it because we're right there in the middle of it. We're walking around on the planet. But if you could go out there into space and look back, as some of the astronauts have done, and you can see that zone where the light begins to fade and, and the darkness begins to pick up. Now, because of our atmosphere, it's not a sharp line. But nevertheless, there is a, a, an area where the light grades into the darkness. And, and the spherical shape of the Earth is obvious if you're out, of course, in space looking at this. A particular feature. Now, an unfocused, totally diffuse light basically gives almost no shadows at all. And apparently this original light that God created was just a general illumination everywhere all over the planet. And now he, he focuses the light. He bring, begins to bring it in from a single source. Whatever that is, he hasn't created the sun yet, so it can't be the sun. Uh, there's this single source of light that's beginning to invade the planet Earth, and shadows are formed, and day and night come into existence. Now, obviously, the coming of day and night infers at least the possibility of the planet rotating on its axis by that time. Now, it seems impossible, doesn't it, to us? If there's no sun yet, how can there be a focused sort of source of light? Well, with God, what? All things are possible. He is the creator. He can do all things. 
He can have the light coming from a single source without having created the so-called sun yet, if he so chooses. It's interesting to note it says he created darkness. Now in this case, it's certainly physical darkness that is being discussed here. Because you see, physical darkness serves to provide a parallel to spiritual darkness. As you, as you parallel physical light with spiritual light, so you can parallel physical darkness with spiritual darkness. God does not create spiritual darkness. God allows spiritual darkness. But God did create physical darkness when he created the world. Darkness is what? The absence of light. The physical realm, the darkness results from the inability of the eye to perceive light. If one is blind, one lives in darkness, right? Physical darkness was provided for a very specific reason, and that was to give to God's creatures a time of rest. Now, not to all. Some are nocturnal. They sleep, sleep, slept during the day. But anyway, it was a time of rest uh, for whichever way the animals happened to be. Uh, but God provided this, this, this time of rest, and it was not to be a time of fear, not something to be afraid of. You are, I think, very familiar with the passage that is so often quoted, especially within missionary contexts, in uh, Psalm 91, where it says, you will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. As God's children, we have no cause to be fearful of day or night. The night is a wonderful time. The night is a good time. The night is a, supposed to be a time of rest, time of peace. We cease the labor of the day. God created darkness as a good thing. When God said, let there be light, and it was good, it encompassed the whole fact that there was also darkness. It was all good. The whole thing that God created was good. In uh, Psalm 139, verse 12, we read this. Even the darkness is not dark to thee, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to God. To him, there's no difference, light or dark. It's all part of God's provision for us. I think it's important for us at this point to focus a little bit upon darkness in the spiritual realm because I think that's, that this is inferred and implied as we read these pas passages in Genesis the darkness which is in this world today, in the spiritual realm, is the result of the rejection of the light of God in this world. Rejection of the one who came as the light of the world. Let's look first at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 4. In him, this is of course Christ, the Word, was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it, the meaning there is overpower it. 
The darkness was not able to overpower the light. Jesus came into the world as the unquenchable light, sent by God out of eternity past to be the Savior of the world. And that light shines into your life and my life. life. And, and that is the life of, uh, light of true hope for each of us. Whether we have physical ability to continue to see light throughout the entire length of our life or not, we have the light of Christ in our hearts irrespective of all of that. Later on in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12, we read this. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I think we're well aware of the fact that everything is being done today by the enemy to keep eyes blinded to the light, to cause the light to be dim by throwing up things in front of the light, often in the name of Christianity, to make the lamp light shine dimly. I think there are so many things that are happening in our society today which are intended to prevent the light from shining clearly and brightly. Now, the light is unquenchable, but the light can be caused to not shine as brightly because often of what the, quote, church does and how Christians live in this life today. I think it's really important for us to become, to keep shining our mirrors, so to speak, shining our lives so that the light of Christ which shines in us is reflected full force out into the world around us. I think it's really important. That's why the scripture teaches us in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor of God and to shine up that armor so that the light and the glory of Christ is seen in this world. Paul experienced this on the road to Damascus and later on in Acts, he recounts this uh, in Acts chapter 26, verse 18. This is his, he's recounting what God said to him, uh, saying that he's delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. This passage clearly equates darkness with the kingdom of Satan, darkness with unforgiven sin, light with God, light with the forgiveness of sin. Many religions have come along, such as Zoroastrianism, which we related to already last week, which, which contrasts light with darkness. And you probably, if you ever studied world religions, you know there are many religions that have a light and a dark aspect to them. And this is all done as subterfuge, something to kind of prevent people from really seeing the truth of the fact that there is a God who is light and that darkness does not have to remain. It may be dispelled by the light of his gospel. Let's, let's go again, ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 again and read a couple more verses that are part of that passage. 
We read verse 6 a few minutes ago. Now let's look at verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to whom? To those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the exact image of God. You, you and I have all talked to various individuals and explained to them what we understood to be the truth of the gospel, and, and they just couldn't accept it or, or wouldn't accept it for nothing. Why? Because their eyes are blind. There's a veil. There, there are blinders. And until God lifts those blinders, they don't see. They don't understand. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. They can't see the light of the gospel. So just as a person can enter this life physically blind and never see the light, so we all enter into this world spiritually blind. But as God lifts the veil, we're able to see the light. And, and tr I trust everyone in here has had that moment when the veil was lifted and the light of the gospel shined in and the, the heart was transformed. I can remember the day. I hope you can too. Not that that's absolutely critical as long as it's happened. Uh, and, you know, it becomes a, a, an actual turnaround point in your life, whether you be younger or older at that moment. And the light is there. Do you ever feel like you're the only one in your various work group or whatever it is who really perceives what's happening in this world? Who really can see what's happening in the workplace? Who can see what's happening in our government? You know, you, you all watch this whole thing having to do with uh, Judge Thomas and the whole thing, and you wonder, boy, these poor people, they, they don't know truth from error. How can you know who's lying and who's telling the truth? God knows. That's our hope. That's our knowledge. God knows. Nothing is hid from the eyes of whom, with eyes of him with whom we have to do. And that, of course, is the joy and the hope and the peace that we can have in this life. Now, the last phrase of Genesis 1-5 seems to indicate that the events preceding it, preceding that particular statement, occurred in one day. Certainly from verse 3 through verse 5, this was the first day. Maybe from verse 1 through verse 5 constitutes the first day. We, we don't know. With, with God, time is you know, inconsequential. Certainly it means or could mean that the earth is rotating on its axis by this time to produce the evening-morning phenomenon. But let me again mention that some believe that this is a revelational day and not a creative day. That God took one complete day to reveal the events of the first five verses to Moses. And that is the day being referred to according to some. But as you'll notice as you look on your outline in uh, number 2C there, that there is a Hebrew word here which is continuously used throughout the Old Testament for the word day. It's the word yom. You and I see it on our calendars, particularly this month frequently, uh, for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is the high holy day 
of the Jewish faith. The term yom can have a broader meaning than just a 24-hour day. It can. It can, it can mean a kind of a, t a long time period. It's sort of an epoch, even. But not when used with ordinal numbers. First, second, third. As it says here, the first day, the second day, the third day. Nowhere in any other place in the Old Testament does it ever mean anything besides a 24-hour period when it has an ordinal number with it. Besides that, let's, let's look at a, a well-known verse in Exodus chapter 20. This verse we know a lot about, but uh, tends to be largely uh, set aside today. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Now if the word yom means an epoch, this verse becomes rather foolish, doesn't it? And God blessed the seventh epoch and made it holy, and, and therefore you're supposed to rest for the seventh epoch, whatever that would mean, you know. Are you part of the restful epoch? <laughs> well, are we supposed to spend all our lives just kicked back and rest? Well, some people believe so, and that's how they spend their lives. But, but it seems that the clear parallel is the Sabbath was a single day. And the scripture goes on throughout the Old Testament to talk about the Sabbath as being a single 24-hour day. And so if, if you were to try to translate Yom as, as a great age, uh, a great epoch of time in which all of these geological events took place, then, then this verse seems to make no sense to us. The clear implication is that we're talking about a single day. Whether 24 hours or not is rather immaterial. You know, was the earth turning faster on its axis, slower on its axis? Does it really matter? If you're comparing hours with eons, is it significant whether the day would have been equivalent to 36 of our hours or, or whatever, if it were any different? I don't, I don't really think so. It wouldn't really matter at all. I really feel that whether we take it as a revelational day, as a creative day, it was a day. It was a single day. I think that's what Scripture is saying. And personally, I believe it was a creative day, not a revelational day. Let's look at the sixth verse of Genesis 1. As we begin the second day, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. <laughs> Sounds like double talk, doesn't it? And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning a second day. God now speaks again on this second day, it's the second creative day, and changes begin to occur around the surface of this planet, Earth. Now, many of you probably have read Matthew Henry. He's one of the better-known devotional commentators who wrote two and a half centuries ago. Uh, and as he comments about this, he points out that in verse 6, God commanded the expanse to be created and the waters to be separated. Then verse 7, it says, And God 
made the expanse and separated the waters. And the point he makes here is this, and this, this is a quote. What God requires of us, he himself works in us, or it is not done. He that commands faith, holiness, and love creates them by the power of his grace working through his word. God said, let it be so, and then he did it. God says to us, let it be so in our lives, and he does it. Now our requirement is what? To be cooperative, to be people of faith, to be people seeking what God will do in our lives, wanting him to change us, wanting the light of his word to shine into our lives day after day and to make us more and more polished mirrors to reflect his glory in, into this world. Can you imagine the beauty of this new world as God creates it and the, and the light shines? It must have just glowed with an aura that is not seen anymore. Some of you probably have read uh, C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet, in which the Earth is kind of referred to by extraterrestrials as Thulkandra, the silent planet, the dark, silent planet. None of the joys of the other planets and stars are heard from this dark, silent planet because it's under the control of the prince of the power of the air. But it wasn't that way in the beginning. The King James Version translates the word expanse as firmament, and that really tends to throw one off of trying to understand this because I always think of firmament as almost like terra firma, you know. You think of it as, as ground or something. And that's, of course, not what is being said here at all. The term that is translated expanse refers to something spread out thinly like a sheet. And certainly what it's referring to is the atmosphere. Whatever was the the depth and the composition of the atmosphere at that time, it was the atmosphere, certainly, that God is referring to here. And it was sandwiched between two layers of water. Now, the lower layer we don't have any trouble with, the hydrosphere, the, the oceans of the world, and then as, of course, the continents pushed up, the lakes and the rivers and the ponds, all of this const constitutes the hydrosphere of the planet. Our problem comes with the waters above the expanse. No. Were there oceans slopping around out there on top of the atmosphere? No, I don't think so. The least it refers to is the water vapor in the atmosphere, as we know it today. That could be the least that it would refer to. And you and I know there's plenty of water, well, not plenty here. <clears throat> Some places in the world, there's plenty of water vapor up there uh, in the atmosphere. But many have studied this and have postulated other things as to what this might mean. There are some who believe it might refer to a big, thick layer of clouds or even maybe an ice canopy or shell that totally surrounded the world. The only problem with that is, of course, it would subdue the light from the sun and the moon and the stars and would create a kind of a very diffuse uh, radiation into the planet from space. Much more likely, at least to me, is a water vapor canopy. Yes, a canopy, but one of transparent, invisible water vapor. 
out there, maybe in the upper troposphere, maybe in the lower stratosphere. I mean, God could have done anything he so chose. But a much heavier uh, water vapor canopy than we know to exist today. Hundreds of times more dense than what we experience today. Now, you know, water vapor, as long as it hasn't condensed in little droplets, is invisible. You, you can see through it. It's transparent. It's not until the little droplets begin to form that it begins to create fog and vapor and the kinds of things that become more visible. Now, what's interesting about the water vapor canopy theory, and it is a theory, of course, is that it tends to answer many questions that one might have about the early Earth vis-a-vis -vis the planet we know today. For example, if you're looking on your outline about three-quarters of the way down there, First, if there were such a thing as a water vapor canopy, it would have created a significant greenhouse effect. Now, we hear a lot about a greenhouse effect today, and the scientists aren't really sure if that's good, bad, or what it is. Um, but they talk about the fact that a lot of burning creates carbon dioxide, which goes up and helps to create a greenhouse effect. The idea that the sun's radiation can penetrate through coming to the planet but then the dark body re-radiation at a different wavelength from the planet, those longer wavelengths can't penetrate back through this layer, whatever it might be. Today, of course, they're concerned mostly about carbon dioxide and other pollutants. But in, in this early Earth, if there happened to be a very heavy water vapor canopy, it would have served in a much similar manner to have created a kind of a solar blanket, if you will, around planet Earth. And this solar blanket would have created ba basically uniform temperatures worldwide. Whether the poles or the equator, the temperatures would not have varied much because of this solar blanket effect that would have been created. And if such uniform temperatures did exist, first of all, winds would be inhibited. Why do winds blow? Because of differentials between high and low pressure cells on the surface of the planet. The wind tends to rush from the highs to the lows. Uh, if, if you have a basic uniform temperature, you don't have any highs and lows, and therefore you would have little reason for air movement. Uniform temperatures also, then, would inhibit precipitation. And the scripture seems to indicate, as you read in the passage relative to the Noahic flood, that it had not rained before. That seems to be the implication there. And that would be understandable because there would not, not be what we call cyclonic rain, which is what we mainly experience here, the great uh, storms that come in from the Alaskan low up there, which sweep in here are, are great cyclones. And they are produced by high and low pressure differences and temperature differences. Uh, orographic rain, which is the, when the wind masses sweep up mountains and are cooled by what they call adiabatic cooling, which produces precipitation. or uh, Convectional cooling that you occur that occurs at the equator when you heat the air and it rises up and cools and precipitates. None of that would occur because you'd have basically a uniform temperature around the planet and through much of the atmospheric layer. Also, you wouldn't have any wind blowing dust in the air to form nuclei for the rain to precipitate on, to to collect on, condense on. Uh, thirdly, or C, uh, with high humidity and major temperatures differences really being only diurnal, that is between day and night, 
you would, it, this would probably encourage do formation. That seems to be the implication of, of Genesis, that dew tended to water much of the landscape, and the dew would collect in heavy amounts and would run down the plant leaves and, and water the ground. And then this, of course, in turn would encourage lush vegetation. And this lush vegetation wouldn't just grow at the equator, it would grow where we are here, it would grow at the poles. It would grow worldwide. Now, if you have studied geology at all, you know that they have discovered in Antarctica coal deposits. How do you get coal in Antarctica? It's under ice. Well, they argue, well, the surface, the crust of the earth has been slipping around over the mantle, and there was a time when Antarctica was at the equator. And of course, they find coral reefs way up in the high latitudes where coral reef couldn't form today. Well, a better answer would be uniform temperatures. There were plants growing in Antarctica. It was forested at one time. Uh, coral reefs could grow in any part of the ocean of the world under this kind of a situation. And then also, a water vapor canopy of heavy density would also tend to filter out harmful radiations that are coming in from good old wonderful soul out there, the sun. I was reading, I don't know if any of you get the uh, University of California medical news letter, whatever it's called, but uh, they had an article a while back talking about lying out in the sun. They said, you might as well go out and find a big nuclear plant and bask in the glow of it as to, to lie out in the sun because all this harmful radiation is really devastating to the human body. And, uh, but much of that radiation would have been filtered out. Now this, this would be, of course, important from the time from the fall to the flood. Obviously before the fall, God created a perfect world. There was no harmful radiation of any kind, whether this solar blanket kept it all out or whatever, whether there even was any harmful radiation before the fall. That might be doubtful. But from the time of the fall to the time of the flood, that would have filtered much of it out, would have increased longevity. And if you've ever noticed in Scripture, when does the length of human life drop precipitously? Right after the flood. Now, Noah lives to be 950, and then right after that you find people are dropping way down like 200 years. Now, to us that seems long. Uh, most of us would hate to live 200 years in the world which we find ourselves today. But nevertheless, why? Is it because God just ordained it to be so? Or did he ordain it to be so by the removal of this great protective blanket, which now allows all this harmful radiation to come in and age us prematurely and destroy our bodies quickly? And of course, we facilitate that by the greater exposure we have to the sun. And then finally, such a canopy would, would provide sufficient moisture in the atmosphere for the torrential rain which fell at the time of the flood. Do you realize that today, if you were to take all of the moisture in the atmosphere of the world at one time and precipitate it out on the earth, that you'd have two inches of water worldwide? That hardly would create a Noahic flood, even counting the breaking up of the deep. It says it rained 40 days and 40 nights. The implication is worldwide. It couldn't have done that with the atmosphere we have today. But if there was this massive water vapor canopy that God then precipitated out, there would have been 
the necessary moisture for this torrential rain for that length of time, which would have raised the sea level to the levels that we know it to be today. Well, I think we'll stop at that point where I think at the bottom of the outline. Next week, we'll begin with the third creative day, and this is a fascinating one because of the events which transpire, and life is created for the first time.